Deuteronomy 6.10 Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God. You shall worship Him and swear by His name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and He will wipe you off the face of the earth. Father, again, we ask that you would teach us speak into our hearts what you've already begun this morning, Father. Bring us to that place of confidence, Lord, and humility before you. Let us hear your word. Holy Spirit, we invite you to teach and to touch our hearts as you see fit. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Well, here they are, Israel, gathered together on the east side of the Jordan River, listening to Moses' farewell address. And I think it must have just been hard to sit and listen. I mean, like you and me, there must have been times as Moses was recounting their entire history and the entire law, which is what we have to look forward to in the book of Deuteronomy as we continue on. There must have been plenty of moments when minds wandered, as we are wont to do, <clears throat> when heads nodded, when some of the children of Israel leaned over to their parents and said, What's he saying? When some of the parents didn't answer because they were off somewhere else. As so often can happen to people. But when Moses would make a statement like this, I would imagine that heads stopped nodding. That people suddenly sat up and, and took notice and listened and minds tuned in. He says unequivocally, when the Lord brings you in. When the Lord brings, not if the Lord brings you in. Not if perchance somehow you just fight well enough and can possibly take the land. Good luck. He says, when the Lord brings you in. And then he promises great and splendid cities full of houses and well dug cisterns and vineyards and olive trees. He says, you are going in and the promised land is going to be every bit as wonderful as you've imagined, as you've dreamed. A land flowing with milk and honey. A great place to go when you go in. And you and I have the exact same promise. Oh, not to go into the promised land. But to go to a place of promise in Christ Jesus. 2 Peter 3.13 tells us, According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I can say to you this morning, when you are in the new heaven and new earth. When, not if. When. And if you have any doubt about that this morning, would you pause for just a moment and ask the Lord to confirm in your heart some faith? If you're a Christian, if you've considered yourself to be a, a church-going Christian for any amount of time, would you stop with the lack of confidence and say, Yes, Lord, I believe that I'm going to go in. Because there are far too many of us who question that. Hey, if you're in Christ, you're going in. If you're in Jesus, you have a home, a place prepared for you, and the new heavens and the new earth are a promise for you. And if you're not in Christ today, if you're not sure what I mean when I say if you're in Christ, if you're not sure what your faith is, then I invite you to stop and think about and consider Jesus this morning 
and the great promises He has for anyone who would simply believe in Him. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And Hebrews 10.37 tells us, For yet in a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. I love that verse. After Wednesday night Bible study, Walking outside, I was talking with Stephen LaDonna at Barrington. And LaDonna, she just said, you know, I really think it's any minute. And she got this great grin on her face. And she said, there are times when I hear a sound or a noise and I think, is it? And I got a big smile on my face and we began talking about that expectation and that joy that can fill the heart of any believer just knowing, hey, it could be any second. In a very little while, he was coming, will come, and will not delay. Gang, we have the same certainty that Moses had, only our certainty, this expectation of promise, is far more amazing. We have a certainty of going into the place prepared for us. We have this wonderful picture here of the children of Israel about to go in and Moses using that great word, when it happens. Gang, the Lord is calling us, preparing us to go in. To be ready for that glorious day. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 42, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day the Lord is coming. In verse 44 of the same chapter, he says, For this reason you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think. Now again, let me ask a question I've asked many times before. How many of you believe that by the time we're done with the teaching this morning that Jesus will have come? We're going to see a show of hands. How many people believe Jesus is going to come before we're done this morning? See, that's great news that very few of you raise, raise your hand. Because that means the likelihood of His coming has just increased tenfold. Because you don't think He's coming this morning. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I'm not raising my hand because in an hour or so, or, well, half hour, 45 minutes, however long Rick goes this morning, if he's not here, I'm going to be one of the idiots who have my hand up. Would you join me and just be an idiot this morning and say, Lord, come quickly. (laughs) Jesus invites us, my friends, to live in a state of readiness, preparing for and counting on the imminent fulfillment of his return, which means we have an expectation when we go into the land. But it's great. It's more than that. Because the children of Israel, gang, they're about to enter a land that is fully furnished. They don't have to go to renters or us to get the furniture. The houses are already going to be full. The vineyards already planted. The land already prepared. The cisterns, the wells already dug. Water, fresh water waiting for them. All they have to do is go in and take it. Verses 10 through 11 tell us it shall come about when the Lord brings you into the land which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build. And the house is full of great things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. I love that. I'm going to give you something that you didn't do. I'm going to provide for you in such a way that you can't say, look at our hard work and the fruit of our labors. No, it's the fruit of someone else's labors. The people who had been sinning against God for 400 years in the land had also been working hard for themselves and developing some sense of prosperity and God saying, hey, in their sin, they're losing it. But in you, I'm giving you all these things. A fruit that you did not plant. Cities just waiting to be conquered. Houses waiting to be enjoyed. Wells waiting to be drawn from. Vineyards ripe with grapes and olive trees thick with shade. 
A wonderful place that they had nothing to do with preparing. But that's not really what I want to talk about this morning. (laughs) What I want to talk about is the next verse, verse 12, where Moses says, when all this great stuff happens, then watch yourselves. Watch yourselves that you do not forget the Lord. The word watch there, it's shamar in Hebrew, meaning hedge. Hedge yourself. Beware. Take care. Guard against wrong attitudes entering into your mind. Why does he say watch yourself? Because it's this, in our season of prosperity that we so easily and often forget the source of our provision. In the season of our prosperity, we forget the source of our provision. You could call it the presumption of prosperity. I've worked hard this year, and now I can enjoy enjoy the fruit of my labor. It's because of my leadership that I have all that I have earned. Oh, the secret of my success is my sweat and determination and skill. She works hard for the money, so you better treat her right. Gang, it's a dangerous and it is a destructive mindset. Who gave us the strength in the first place to achieve anything? Who gave you the intelligence to maybe start a business that becomes successful? Who gave you the wherewithal and the determination to to move through hard times to get to a place of success? Who gave you anything that you have that comes from one source, one place alone? From the Lord God. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 8. A couple chapters over and listen to verse 16. Moses continuing his oration, he says to the children of Israel, chapter 8, verse 16, In the wilderness he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, and that he might test you, and do good for you in the end. Otherwise, listen to this, you may say in your heart, My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who is giving you power to make wealth that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Gang, listen, in the very nature of God stands one word, giving. God is a gracious, giving God. He wants to give to you. He wants to give all things to his children. He loves to give. God is like the father at Christmas time, just sitting back in the easy chair, watching the kids open the presents and enjoying himself immensely. And I didn't understand that when I was a kid. As a child, I wanted to get, and the more I could possibly get, the better. But the older I get, the more Christmas is for me as a dad, a time of enjoyment to watch my kids freak out over what they're getting. There's a great pleasure in that. Psalm 81 verse 10 says, I, the Lord, am your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now listen, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. You get this picture of these little chicks in this nest with their mouths just open, just waiting. And along comes the mother bird feeding and taking care of and nourishing her young. Matthew chapter 7 verse 11 If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, slap in the face, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? God is a giver. And the most givingest person among us, the most gracious parent among us, isn't even close to the nature and the character of God who wants to give what is good to those who ask Him. And James says, hey, we have not because we ask not. So ask, 
Because God wants to give. James 1.17 says, Every good thing given, as we sang this morning, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we will become a kind of first fruits among His creatures. God is a giver. And it's most powerfully seen in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave his only begotten Son. And whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And Paul picks up on this statement of Jesus in Romans 8.32, and he says, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? God is a giver. He loves to give. That's His nature. Man, on the other hand, is a usurper. We love to take. In our self-centered thinking, we actually presume that our prosperity is the result of our personal performance. I have worked hard. I have achieved. I have earned what I have. It's mine. (laughs) And no one can take it from me. But I've worked for it. perfect example of this in the Bible involves a great world leader. One that Joni was talking about. I don't know if she even realized it. Probably did. He's talked about quite a bit in the book of Jeremiah. The guy's name was King Nebuchadnezzar. Would you turn in your Bibles over to Daniel chapter 4 for a moment? Daniel chapter 4. A bit to the right of the middle of your Bibles. I want to read a bit of this chapter this morning. Because this king, this great, powerful, world dictator named Nebuchadnezzar, very famous in world history for being the dictator over one of the greatest, if not the greatest, empires ever known to man, the empire of Babylon, this king Nebuchadnezzar was having some thoughts about his greatness and all that he had achieved. In Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live In all the earth, may your peace abound. Now, check this out. In the middle of the prophecies in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar writes a chapter. Did you know the king Nebuchadnezzar of history actually wrote part of the Bible? He did. Chapter 4 of Daniel. It's in his words. It's his writing. It tells us down in verse 4, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. You been there? At ease and flourishing? And I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. These fantasies, as I lay on my bed, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. And so I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. And then the magicians and the conjurers and the Chaldeans and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar. According to the name of my God, as Daniel's name was renamed that when he was in Babylon, and, and in whom is a spirit of the holy God, because, you see, Daniel had already interpreted a dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy God is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I had seen, along with its interpretation. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of all the earth, and its height was great. 
the tree grew large and became strong and its height reached to the sky and it was visible to the end of the whole earth its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all the beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches and all living creatures fed themselves from it and I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. And behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. And he shouted out and he spoke as follows. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground. But with a band of iron and bronze around it, in the new grass of the field, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him share with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. And let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. Oh, the prophetic in here is amazing, but we don't have time for it this morning. Verse 17. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows on it whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now, he says, you, Belteshazzar, Daniel, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom are able to make known to me the interpretation but you are able for a spirit of the holy gods is in you skip down to verse 24 and so Daniel recounts this he talks he, he, he steps back because as he realizes the interpretation of the dream Daniel is a little afraid to give it he says in verse 24 in this interpretation or this is the interpretation O king and this is the decree of the Most High God which has come upon my Lord the King that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes and it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules therefore O king may my advice be pleasing to you break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity Babylon gang Babylon was an amazing kingdom you look back at history and, and what archaeologists have been able to piece back together and what writings have been able to show us over time. Nebuchadnezzar was likely walking on the roof. In fact, it tells us, verse 28, all of this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And as he walked on that royal palace roof, he could see his kingdom, the vast accumulation of his wealth, his prosperity, his hard work, his labor. Nebuchadnezzar was the richest man in the entire world and he ruled over the richest kingdom in the entire world. He could see the city walls. The walls of Babylon, 350 feet high, 87 feet thick. Chariots could ride side by side in rows of six along the top of the walls that surrounded Babylon. It was magnificent. There were 220 towers located throughout the wall. And, on the, wall, and the wall alone that surrounded the city was considered to be worth over a billion dollars today's money. Incredible wealth. 
the Great Euphrates River had been diverted around the city as a massive blue, huge moat running around Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar could see that from the top of the palace. The city storehouses, it is said, were so full that Babylon could last 20 years under siege from an opposing army on the outside. In the middle of the city on a huge base 400 feet square and 400 feet up in the air were the legendary hanging gardens of Babylon called one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and it's said that when you looked at those hanging gardens it literally looked like a mountain of flowers in the middle of this city. Stunning. And at the top of that mountain of flowers was the Temple of Bell, which contained an idol to Bell that's valued in today's money at $17 million. This was a vast and wealthy place. And Nebuchadnezzar is walking about and considering his greatness, his glory, his grandeur. He's looking out over his, his great prosperity. And in verse 30 it says, The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great? Which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven, saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whomever he wishes Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like birds' claws. He went insane, gang. This entire process, there's a word for it actually in the English language, it's lycanthropy. It's where a man becomes beastly or animal-like. It's, it's an insanity. And this happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And it said that in his insanity, he, he ran into the hanging gardens of Babylon. That he ran around and lived among those gardens for seven years, completely insane, until his hair grew long and his nails were long. A lot like Saddam Hussein looked when they found him in his little hidey hole. Is that prophetic? I don't know. It's interesting. Saddam Hussein said he was the new Nebuchadnezzar, believed he was the reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar, amassed for himself great wealth and great power in the country of Iraq, using his people to do it. Where's his wealth now? Where's his power and authority now? But this is wonderful, verse 34, and very few people recognize this among historians. I think it's likely that Nebuchadnezzar will be in heaven because he... He got saved. Listen to this. At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Have you ever said that to the Lord? Well, what have you done? I was doing so well. And all of a sudden now I'm in great debt. I'm in great need. I'm having great problems. What have you done, Lord? Careful. No one can ward off his hand or say, What have you done? 
He said at that time, My reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out, so I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. But listen to the new Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of Heaven. All his works are true, and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in, what was the word you shared with us? Pride. He is able to walk, to humble those who walk in pride. And so he did with Nebuchadnezzar. Why do we go into all this and read this entire story? Hey, it's an awesome story, but it's not an isolated incident in the history of the world. It has happened time and time and time again in Earth's history. A man amasses for himself some measure of prosperity and thinks, now I will sit at ease in my greatness. Now I've achieved the fruit of my labors. And God says, huh uh Because it ain't the fruit of your labors, if God uses words like ain't. It's not the stuff that you have done. It's not your power and your wisdom and your might and your authority that has achieved for you the things that you have. It's only the giving of God. It is only what God has decided to prosper you with. If we could grasp that simple basic concept, we would never have a problem with prosperity in our world. If we could just understand, we, we would never be greedy. We would never covet what someone else has because we would look at what someone else has and say, Oh, that's what God gave them. Praise the Lord. So how do we avoid Nebuchadnezzar's pitfalls? Because I don't know about you, but I've been in that place. Looking around at the things that I have achieved, at the things that I have done, and, and thought to myself, I'm doing pretty well for myself here. I drive a new Kia Spectra. <laughs> Go back to Deuteronomy 6.13. Deuteronomy 6.13. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and He will wipe you off the face of the earth. What does it mean, by the way? God's a jealous God. You can track this just for a minute. I shared this a couple of times on recent Wednesday night, but it's important to understand. I've been asked the question, if God is love and love is not jealous, how can God be a jealous God? It's a good question. God is love, and love is not jealous, which the Bible tells us both. Then how can God be a jealous God? And it's in the nature of His jealousy, gang. God's jealousy is not like man's jealousy. In any way, shape, or form, God's jealousy is driven by His love for us. Our jealousy is driven driven by what's good for us selfishly. When I'm jealous of someone, it's because I want something they have, or I want them to be where I can enjoy them for myself. And the Lord's jealousy is, I am jealous for your hearts because I want you to be where I am. Why? So that you will be blessed for all eternity. Totally different kind of jealousy, but it is a passionate, fiery jealousy. And God doesn't want anything to stand between you and Him, especially not your prosperity. Especially not the presumption that you have achieved what you have. That gets in the way so quickly. And so Moses says, watch yourselves. God says, I am jealous for you. Beware the presumption of prosperity. Why? Because it will take you away from where I am. It will take your mind and your heart off of where I want you to be. Listen to this verse. Interesting verse. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 13. 
Solomon is writing, he says, Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has benched? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. God has given both prosperity and adversity. Both riches and poverty, they both come from the Lord. Why? Solomon says, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Now, I want you to understand that phrase. So that man will not discover anything that will be after him. What does that mean? It means that you can store up all that you want for the future, but the Lord uses both prosperity and adversity to keep our hearts toward him. Not to prepare and plan for ourselves, but down the road, man, see, I amassed it. It's, it's the parable Jesus told of the man in, in the, the barns. I've got so much stuff. Let me build bigger barns for myself so I can fill them with more stuff. And then I can sit back and just have my day of ease. And he missed the point. That everything he had was from God anyway. And got to take when he wanted and give when he wanted. That's the nature of the Lord. And in the middle of our wide, smooth, wealthy highways, God comes along and occasionally bends the road. He takes this thing that we think is so straight. My plans for the future, my prosperity to, to take care of me 10, 20, 30 years from now. He takes this wonderful plan and he puts a bend in the road. And suddenly your company calls and says, no more pension. Suddenly your job is over like that. Suddenly you're in a place where all of that beautiful, straight, wealthy highway that you have been preparing is gone. God has just put a little bend in the road. And I believe what the Lord would be saying to you in that moment is, so now where are we? Do you trust me to take care of you, to provide for you? Don't you know that everything you had, past tense, I can give you again? I can take care of you? Do you believe this? God wants to wake us up to this reality. Jesus' words, Mark 8.35, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? God doesn't want anybody to be so prosperous on earth that they end up bankrupt right on the edge of eternity. Spiritually. Now listen, prosperity in and of itself is not a bad thing. I'm not sharing with you things about riches and wealth and prosperity so that you would feel guilty if you happen to be in that position. And I'm also not sharing it to you if you happen to be in the position of not having anything right now. And you're wondering, well, this obviously doesn't apply to me. No, it applies to all of us. In fact, if your money is tight right now, don't tune this out. Listen up. Those of us, even the least among us here as far as what we have in terms of our stuff, bank accounts, whatever, we still, all of us, collectively this morning, rank among the wealthiest people in all of history. 99.9999999% repeating of all history is less wealthy than you and I sitting in this barn this morning. We are the wealthiest nation ever. We have things at our fingertips that kings like Solomon and David had to wait for. We just get in the car and pop down to 7-Eleven and get a Slurpee. Did David ever get a Slurpee? There's your example of riches and wealth right there. I want you to flip over to Matthew 27. We're going to finish there this morning, but there's something you've got to see, and it helps, I hope, bring this all together. Matthew 27. We live, gang, again, in the wealthiest nation of all time. 
We're more wealthy than anybody who's walked the planet, and yet we're so used to it, that when I don't have the extra five bucks for McDonald's, I think, oh no, money's tight. We're just so used, used to the riches. So how do we deal with this? How do we avoid the pride of prosperity? How do we avoid the pride of a Nebuchadnezzar? How do we avoid getting into that place where all of that we've gotten for ourselves keeps us from the Lord? Watch this. Matthew 27, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea. A rich man named Joseph, who himself also became, had become a disciple of Jesus. Now something about Joseph is interesting. He was very rich, but he was also very secretive. He was a disciple of Jesus, but no one knew it. It was very hush-hush. Very on the side. He was a clandestine disciple. And up to this point, Joseph of Arimathea, this wealthy man, couldn't risk being publicly associated with Jesus. But something changed in his heart. Something completely altered him when Jesus was crucified. Joseph, as it were, came out of the closet as a disciple of Jesus Christ. He clued in, and at this point we see he couldn't care less about his wealth or his reputation. Verse 58, it tells us, This man went before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate ordered it be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Only the wealthiest in Jerusalem at the time could afford such a tomb. There are those who believe that they have found that tomb. It's called Gordon's tomb or the garden tomb in Jerusalem today. It may or may not be the actual tomb that Jesus was laid in, but it's very interesting. There's some compelling evidence to think that it's likely that that's where Jesus was buried. The tomb of a rich man. This rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. But what does this have to do with handling prosperity? Listen, a little insight. We see Joseph after the crucifixion, after the sacrifice of Jesus. What does he do? He goes and he asks for the body. But Mark doesn't tell us that he asked for the body. Let me tell you what Mark said. Mark 15.43 tells us Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, he came and he went in boldly unto Pilate. And in the King James Version it tells us, correctly translating, he craved the body of Jesus. He craved the body of Jesus. The word in some other translations may be desired, but it's more intensely translated, he craved. He longed for, he wanted to get hold of the body of Jesus Christ. How does a prosperous person avoid the presumption of wealth and the pitfalls of prosperity? How do we go into the land, as Moses told the people, and guard ourselves against thinking that all these wonderful things that we've been given have come from ourselves? How do we do it? We crave the body of Christ. Crave the body of Christ. What does that mean? Three things and we're done. In communion, which we already shared this morning, we crave the body. We crave the body of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11.23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do so in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
And listen to what Paul said. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Why do you Christians have to keep proclaiming the death of Jesus, the crucifixion, the cross, that bloody incident? Why is that so high on your list of priorities to talk about? Gang, because it's not the work of our hands that saves us. It was the work of the hands of Jesus on the cross that provides our entire salvation. We crave the body of Christ. Crave the body in communion. Again, craving the body also means desiring, craving the church. Craving the church. The body of Christ. As the church we are to crave the body. 1 Corinthians 12.24 Paul said, and listen, tune in here, this is so important. God so composed the body Paul says, giving more honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, if one person is hurting, if one person is striving, if one person is having difficulty, guess what? The entire body, every member suffers with that person. And Paul says if one member is honored, all the members rejoice together with that member. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And gang, this is not some kind of religious metaphor. Paul's not just using some cute little word picture. We are Christ's body. And loved ones, we are called to crave this more than any other relationships we have in our lives. Let me get intense with you for a moment. The relationships you have with other people in the body of Christ are to be craved more than any other. Sometimes I don't feel like craving the body of Christ. Because sometimes the body of Christ is not rejoicing when I'm rejoicing and suffering when I'm suffering. And sometimes I think, sometimes I think, I think I'd rather go outside the body of Christ. Because I get less problems out there. You ever have that thought? I'm just going to be done with the church. And my business associates treat me better than church people do. And the Lord would say, crave the body. Crave the body of Christ. I know we're a mess. I know we're wrinkled and disheveled and we're sinful. And I know we hurt each other and I know we mess things up. Yes, even here at the bridge. But listen. Jesus says, crave the body. Crave my body. This is my body. And I want you together. When one person suffers among us, we all suffer. And when one person is honored, we all rejoice. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's what we're called to. We're not going to always get it right, gang. But that's what we're shooting for. For the sake of Jesus Christ, we crave the body. Paul says in Ephesians 4.1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and all gentleness and with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And if there's anything worth pouring our wealth into, it's the body of Christ. If there's anything worth pouring the wealth of our time, our energy, our relationships, and even our money, gang, it's the body of Christ. We crave the body. For here our investment is eternal. We crave the body of Christ. As we take communion, we're, re- we're reminded of that body that was, that was broken for us. We crave His body. We crave the body as in the fellowship of believers, all believers, by the way, not just those in the barn. 
all believers in the body of Christ. But there's one more aspect of the body of Christ. One more way that we, like the wealthy Joseph of Arimathea, can crave the body. And it's where we began today. In his coming, we crave the body. I don't know about you, but I cannot wait to see him. To see Jesus in all of his glory. In all of his grandeur. Moses said, Israel, when you come into the land, not if, but when. And the coming of Christ is not an if. It's a when. Hebrews 10.37 again, Yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Knowing this, how should that cause us to live? Craving the body. Craving the body of Christ as we see Him in communion, as we love Him in the church, as we long for Him in His coming. That's how we enter into the land and watch ourselves. That's how our wealth becomes a non-issue because, man, I don't care. What I have is from God to use for the body. And Father, we pray this morning that You will teach us to crave the body of Christ. Give us the heart of Joseph of Arimathea that we might desire and long to hold the body of Jesus. wrap our arms around you as you wrap your arms around us Lord Jesus may we be a fellowship that loves each other knowing that every person I love here is is love for you Jesus that as I shake a hand this morning or hug somebody I'm in contact with you Jesus may I not look outside or beyond the body but right here be one who craves relationships and craves love and craves forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation in all things. May we not let things lie, Lord. Build us up into your most perfect love, Father. Give us, Lord, the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. Father, help us to crave Jesus week in and week out. To crave that relationship. And as LaDonna said, to be so excited minute by minute, thinking it could be now. Lord, may we be in that place when you return and we hear the sound of your voice that we are so craving you that it's like drawing water out of a well already dug, eating grapes off of a vine already planted. Lord, entering into a home that is already furnished and waiting for us. As you said, you go prepare a place for us that where you are we may also be. And Father, as we look around at all the things we have today, as we enjoy the splendor of your creation, may we recognize the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen.